You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Joining up to the Comedians Comedian podcast Insiders Club at ComediansComedian.com slash Insiders makes you feel special and cool and it's easy to set up. It's even easy to cancel. And if you have any difficulties, you can email me directly and I personally walk you through it. So you can listen to all the extra content in a very simple way. Once it's set up, all the extras just ping onto your device without needing you to do anything else. You know, like a private podcast. So this is a little extra treat for everyone who supports the show. If you're swamped with podcasts or pushed for time, you can still support the podcast. Just sign up anyway, ignore all the extras and get a hassle-free, warm, fuzzy feeling that lasts forever. Don't miss out. Become an insider at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the only podcast about comedy. Today I'm talking to Robin Ince. Now, as you might expect, uh, Robin makes five points per minute. (laughs) He's absolutely everything I hoped he would be. Um, This is a colossal conversation we had, so there's a lot of stuff to enjoy here. We're going to talk about Robin's development. We're going to talk about his process. We're going to open with a lot of stuff about Robin's forthcoming book, which I cannot recommend enough that you get your teeth into as soon as it is released, which I believe happens later this year. You don't need me to tell you to buy it. Um, I'm sure you're all rabid Robin Ince fans, so let's hear from the man himself. This is Robin Ince. Let's begin with hypervigilance. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I... So, I'm I'm about 150 pages into the draft of your book. I'm oh, afraid... Yeah. I'm sorry I didn't oh, finish no, it. Oh, no, no, no. Do you know what? I literally only said... I was not expecting you to, to read it. It was lit- there... Partly because I went, oh, thank heavens, I've actually finished the bloody thing. So, uh, I, yeah, I... It's I... absolutely brilliant. I've been wetting the appetite of the... Uh, the... I, I say that, maybe it all goes terribly wrong on the 151st oh, page. Do you know what? It's, 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 ta- it's been one of the hardest things that I've ever done. I've really working out... It was about 200,000 words the first draft because I yeah. love writing and uh, I hate editing. So yeah. I love just going... I think that's a very common stand-up thing, isn't it? When the, it it's just there and then it's gone. Yep. And the trouble with the book was like that is it's you've got to they go, uh yeah, this makes no sense. It does in my mind, you yeah, know, all sure, of that stuff. Sure. Sorry, it's, yes, you're it's a... it's a really good book, and I, I am often sent things by people who I'm going to interview, and sometimes I read all of them and sometimes I read a bit of them and then go, I'll go back to that. I will genuinely finish this oh, book because nice, it's no. it, and I think anyone listening to not just this podcast with you in it, anyone who's uh, concerns are the concerns of the, of my podcast 
is going to absolutely love your book oh, because great. can you just describe what it is for the it's not released yet is it, well, it comes no, out it, it comes out in october and the okay. basic idea of it is uh it, it started off when uh, originally in fact the, the whole of the, the introduction was all about the night that robin williams the announcement of his death and i happened to be doing uh a, a gig with uh eddie pepitone mm-hmm. uh and what was it called better than th- uh, cheaper than therapy yep um, and it was comedians talking about how comedy might be their therapy or whatever. Normally it was just doing a stand-up set. Mm-hmm. And I, I happened to say to the guys running it, uh, look, Eddie's here, and I've been doing it. For you. Why don't we have a chat afterwards? Why don't we have a little bit more of a chat? And, uh, and so both of us did our sets, and then we came off the interval, and then everyone looked at their phones and went, up, uh, and it was people in shock because... Mm. Turned out Robin Williams had just been announced that he'd killed himself. And I got really, I, I made a little documentary for Radio 4, and I get very frustrated when people kind of separate comedians as if we become very special things, that we are not like other human beings. And of course, what we are is we may well, I mean, the book is basically meant to, it came from my original idea that comedians are, they're the same as everyone else, but they, they are exaggerated human beings very often, is we exaggerate ourselves on stage, mm-hmm. and sometimes off stage, that can mean that the highs become exaggerated. I, I mean, talking to Joe Brand about the idea that at times it's a sense of um, self-imposed bipolar and I would like to make it clear in no way do I mean that in a way to demean people who genuinely suffer from bipolar disorder but you kind of create this scenario where you're on your own for the whole day and you're in a weird town and you're all very much inside yourself and then you go out for two hours and go look at me here are all the things in my head and then you go back to your hotel or your bed and breakfast and suddenly you're alone again and so you're And I, I wanted to use that to hopefully within it, as well as explaining why we may become as we become and how you can use... There's a hard, I don't know if you've got to it yet because I can't even remember the order of the chapters anymore, but things like inner voices, I'm fascinated by the mm-hmm. fact that as a comedian, one of the things you can do is many of the inner voices that may well be... Uh, detrimental, you can turn into something you express on stage. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading, in the chapter I'm reading at the moment, you're talking about how you enjoy asking comics to describe, to actually visualise yeah. their inner voice, which is an incredible, just what, what a way, what a lens through which to look at the mind of a comedian. How do you see the you that talks to you inside you? How would you describe your inner voice? Well, I've got lots. And it's a, an interesting thing is when you actually realise your inner voice has no accent, but maybe many different personalities. That's my personal one is there's no... Uh, and that's what I find intriguing is you can't... You can hear an inner voice, but it's not the same as hearing from outside. So I have about three or four, okay. I think. On, on stage, I would say it's, you know, there are moments where you get properly lost in the moment of creativity. And that's, that's, I think, one of the reasons that I love doing stand-up, is when it is all working. Like, there was a gig I did on, on Saturday in Southampton, and the night before, I hadn't been happy with the gig. And that night, I just thought, yeah, this was probably erratic, this was probably, I didn't know what was coming next. And for those two hours, all, there was a cacophony, but there was also silence, if you see what I mean. The, yes. The, 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 yes. As, as I think Eddie Pepitone calls his, his negative voices, his, I think he calls pig, them voices, pig voices yeah. you know. And... Um, so I normally have that the, there's one that's creating, there's one that's judging, and there's also there's an editor who said, "Don't say that." So it, it's a little kind of panel of Muppets, really. Do you? Do you? I, I'm going to push you to to visualise them. What do they look like? Because I understand those elements, but one of the most fascinating things in that question you, that you challenge other comics with is what do they just visualise them? Is it? Uh, I think Neil Edmund was talking about how his is a bar out the front of his house with uh, the front of his head, yeah. his house. Um, what 
and I, and I know from my own, I've done um, some gestalt psychotherapy and I, I have got a clear kind of like, oh, there's that one, that one and that one. And they have identities and they have faces. W- what do yours actually look like? Or is it for you simply a sort of a, a, a tone of voice or an attitude rather than a, a visualisable thing? The nearest I can say is that there's the, the incredible painter Walter Sickert who uh, was for a while considered uh, to be a possible Jack the Ripper. It's the one who, God, I've forgotten her name now, the uh, American crime writer who actually bought one of his paintings and cut it all up. And there's these incredible paintings that of uh, the Bedford, in fact, in, in, in Ballam oh, and various other areas where it's kind of Victorian-like music hall paintings. And they do seem to me to be like little half-finished faces in uh, a painting. uh, So it has, almost has a kind of, the the quality of a horror film where you look at what should be a still painting and every now and again you realise the face has moved. So it's that kind of thing. They're not in sharp focus, but they're popping up around the place. Very nice. And they're in in a dull lit... Probably, probably from the work of Powell and Pressburger, they're also it's very red, very red. There's a <laughs> okay. lot, of, lot of faded velvet in there. Okay, okay. So you're... Let me think. I, I, there's, okay, let's just do by way of an introduction. I mean, I, there won't be many people uh, listening to this who don't know who you are. I think one of the things I wanted to preface this interview with um, is that I always... I become very panicky when I don't feel I've sufficiently researched someone you are impossible to do sufficient research on because there is so much Robin Ince out there in so many different media and, you know, you have been involved with... I probably first saw you in Book Club. Yeah, uh, that was 12 or 13 years ago, maybe even before I was a comic, so maybe around that sort of time. Um, You And and I asked on the the Facebook group for this podcast, uh, questions, please, for Robin Ince. It had the most questions that that a request like that has ever had. And... Um, a lot of them, <laughs> some of them were excellent questions, which we'll get to. Um, a lot of them were references to in-joke upon in-joke upon right. in-joke. I just went, I don't know what any of these things mean, because it kind of it formed this sort of chrysalis of like the, the, the internet community's idea of who you are. Do you think you... Terrifying. Oh, it? it is! <laughs> it's terror. That's the thing. I was talking with another comedian today and we were saying, you know, what previously might have, at, at the worst, have been an overheard conversation when you're sat in a toilet and two blokes go to the urinals and talk about how shit the previous act was. That is now this incredible magnified notice board and sometimes like a great big, you know, H.P. Lovecraft leather-bound book of, uh, you know, individual hatred. You know, it's a really... And, and a yes. lot of positive things as well. I mean, that's but of course we're programmed to notice the negative. But yeah, the yes. amount of things out there and the amount of possibilities of what people think we might be doing and, and saying. And you, in your this this is necessarily how this conversation will function. I will I will try to juggle as many of these ideas as possible in the book, which we I'm just going to put in parenthesis uh, is a sort of study of what makes a comedian mm. and it's also an exploration of certain ideas of psychology in relation to what makes a comedian and it's also sort of a memoir yeah you talk about your hyper vigilance you talk about this editing voice i don't know if that is the same as the the editor voice but your constant awareness of yourself and you that's something that i personally really identify with I'm, i am perhaps many comedians will but something that particularly uh, piqued my interest was that you partially attribute yours to um, PTSD from a car accident you had when you were a child. Mm. That, that you draw a line between... Well, it's... Uh, you know, you, you, you ask the question, might that have been responsible for the hypervigilance? Yeah. 
I was involved in a car accident when I was a child. My therapist believes that I might have some PTSD from it. A very small, just trauma, you know, what we used to call trauma. He always says, what we used to call trauma. (laughs) Um, And as a result, I I also ask the question of myself, Jesus, I I wonder if that's where my hypervigilance is coming from. Always worrying about how one is being perceived, how will this be taken, how, you know, a sort of immediate, there are some people I imagine if a thing falls over outside or you hear a bang, everyone will have a different reaction to it. I think you and me both, possibly from what I've read of your work, what I've seen of your work, I think we are of that type whose hypervigilance will mean that if we hear a bang outside, we will immediately think something's gone catastrophically wrong. Is it my fault? Do you know what I mean? Those those sorts of things, that's that's our immediate reaction to something. So I, I'm so with that all being the groundwork, is the fact that an online kind of simulacrum of you exists in the minds of people who are aware of your work, is what is the relationship between that and your hypervigilance? Like if people are constantly reflecting back to you, almost almost kind of fulfilling the the prophecy of you going, mm. Oh, people are, you know, I've, I've always got to watch out for what I say. People are constantly actually watching out for what you say when, mm. what, the, what the hell's all that about Robin? it is it is a really <laughs> intriguing how old were you when you were in the car accident uh 11 yeah because i think that's that's one of the things that i found fascinating when i started looking back at it and and as you know it's that thing you know life lived forward and understood backwards is the further away you get from an event the more because when i was writing the book i got really worried because i, I the, the the one of the editors actually said to me because they ended up needing two editors they went oh my god what have you done to us and uh they, you are allowed to say, so you don't have to just brush off. And then I was in a car accident that I thought was my fault. My mum was in a coma and blah, 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 blah. And they went, no, 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 that is a big, and when you're three years old or, or 11 years old, these are major events. And I, I'm, I was very worried in the process of writing it as well that at no point did I want people to think I was going sad me or anything like that. I wanted to just go, right, I'm just talking about these things just to be out in the open. And I don't want, you know, it's because it, there are people, you, you look at the level of suffering and I think we're always a bit embarrassed, especially, I think, you know, well, maybe not especially British people, but there is that thing where you go, oh, well, this thing happened. And it may well have had a major effect on me. <laughs> so, but I, I do think that that, uh, that mo- it's like my sisters who were, my other sister who was in the crash would have been seven and I think my other sister would have been ten and we all had very different reactions to what happened my my ten-year-old sister wasn't in the crash but afterwards and the way that my dad managed to deal with what's going on but I do think that yeah that bit that the first reaction to a phone ringing at any time now at any time is oh dear what's happened yeah even watching Nick Cave on in fact before Nick Cave on Courtney Barnett on Sunday I was watching Beautiful and there were just clouds in the background and I just briefly imagined what would happen if suddenly an atom bomb went off and I saw Courtney uh, Barnett eviscerated. And, and so all of those, you know, the, the moment of hearing of an ambulance anywhere near my son's school. Uh, yeah, and, sure. and I'm, Even I'm, that, this is nice, brackets, dot, dot, dot. The terrible fear that should you say, oh, I'm feeling very well, then you know that two days later you go, do you know the funny thing? Robin was saying how well he felt, but it just went straight through his body and he was dead within 36 hours. So, yeah, I, I think some of that, uh, what can become amusingly dark pessimism and the relentlessness of the presumption. of not It doesn't necessarily make you a pessimistic, because I think you, as, as a performer as well, I think there's a tremendous optimism in what you do. And I think in more and more in the shows that I do, I try to go... If anything, it's that two hours a day where I can just go, it's an amazing to be in the universe and it's an incredible thing to be this rare thing. So blah, 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 and it allows you to create, perhaps from all the negative things, you go, this... 
The antimatter of that yeah. also allows the matter of going here for two hours oh, is a very positive vision. That's a great and I think, thought. You know, yeah. that, that there are those parts, and, and that's part of, I think, what I was trying to work out as well, which is I, I do worry that for some people who, who I know who've had, had bad things happen in their life, that they end up still holding onto it. And I think there's that the way, and, and it becomes a definition, every time something bad happens, they go, well, of course, it was because of this. But I think there is, hopefully for some people anyway, a way in which you can basically go, ah, oh, I'm able to understand myself, but I'm able to also not entirely define myself by the negative incidents of my existence. So, so I go, yeah, you can understand. It's like that thing where people, in a different way, when people get worried about going... Oh, I suppose I have to feel guilty about that. And you say, no, no, be aware. But it doesn't mean you, you know, awareness doesn't also mean you have to remain tied to it or you have to feel guilty about it, whatever it might be. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. But yeah, the hypervigilance I find fascinating, that bit of not being able to go anywhere without constantly imagining, even though you are predominantly, I'm certain all of us being utterly ignored by the passers-by, but that sensation of, oh my God, what does that person think? What does that person think? You know, yes. there's John Dowie in his... Have you interviewed John Dowie? I haven't, no. I, I, he, he's approached me, actually, and he's got a fascinating backstory, and I, it's just a case of, for a lot of the time, I, I want to see someone's material first, and, you know, when is there time to do or read yeah. or see anything? I mean, there's that, you're the wrong person to ask. <laughs> yeah, free, freewheeling John Dowie, his book is great. But just the way he describes that moment of even as a man, you know, in his 60s, when you just see that there's a bench of teenage girls and you go, you know, that fear that he's never got rid of, the fact yes. that, you know, and then one of them laughs and they may not be laughing at him, but he goes, oh, yeah, again, they go, have you seen the old man with the bicycle over there? Sure, sure. And I think it's an interesting, you know, all of these things are ways of, I think if we're, we're fortunate enough, we can go, well, there is some creative way of using these. And I don't know yes. if it helps or not. I don't know. The thing that I've never really got to the bottom of, is it better to be able to go, right, these, and this is what I imagine. This is part of the thing that happened when I was reading a lot of the articles about Robin Williams is where they kind of try and make it out that it was his stand-up comedy that created this, you know, self-defining, you know, mythological death, you know, yes. which is in another way, the fact that every single night he had the chance to go on and go, look at me, uh, may have actually... you know. And also, by the way, I should make it very clear that, there was, as you know, there were many things that were going on in his life. He was extremely ill and suffering from something which created delusions and a tremendous amount of uncertainty, mm. which is something totally separate from his life as a stand-up com- comedian. But, you know, I, I sometimes think that, if, if anything, it's, a, it's strange how rare it is that comedians... Um, actually kill themselves yes. uh, when you yes, think of the fact that you know one of the things that people hate most is public speaking and public shame and every single one of us and you know if anyone's ever been on this podcast and said that they've never died on their ass then they are lying tremendously you know that moment of dying in a, and, and you go back and you're in a cheap hotel room and you lie there and you go oh, and you feel desperate but then you get up the next day and you go to Peterborough you know and that's and it continues. I would love it if specifically Peter. It's Peter. Peter. Someone listening to this in the future is like, that's how they yeah. keep going. Yeah. <laughs> that's the solution. So the I think we, we were on the cusp of saying something about in terms of Robin Williams's death. People love to kind of um, is the, the, the word archetypalize probably isn't a thing, but do you know what I mean? To 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 perceive an archetype, go the, the most obvious one, the sad clown, or yeah, you know, the fact that. He was who he was on stage, killed him somehow, or was was part of this sort of torturous existence. And at the same time, maybe what happens with um, 
well, I don't know, this is, this is a trite thing to say, we, perhaps comedians who go on to kill themselves would have killed themselves a lot sooner were it not for comedy and the release and the joy and the community and all those things. Mm. David, who knows? Um, so in regard to you, let's go back to the beginning of who you were in comedy. Some of the, one, of the, one of the things I know about your early life in comedy is that you did a four-hander called Rubbernecker. Yeah, you see, that was Edinburgh actually Festival. quite... A, that was about nine years in. Was it? It's when, an odd when, thing. When, which what is, year was that? Because I feel like I saw a poster for it. I've it, been going to Edinburgh for 25 years. I think it would have been two... Thousand or two thousand one. It was the first series of The Office was out, yeah. And it was an incredible. It, it, it was myself, Steve Merchant, Ricky Gervais, and Jimmy Carr. And it was a lovely thing actually. Once where uh, about ten years ago, I think it was Uncut Magazine or Word Magazine had an article about uh, Jimmy Carr, and it had <laughs> uh, a publicity picture from Rubbernecker. Oh wow! And uh, all four of us, and it just said Jimmy Carr with Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, not even to be and unknown. Yeah. You know, not, not even literally to, and to have zero such other a sense of invisibility in that. And and, uh, um, and I remember at the time feeling fine about it as well. And that's when I think I started to work out what I really wanted to do. Because when I did, Rubbernecker would have been, the first thing that I, I suppose I really did was I did So You Think You're Funny in 1992. And I got second place in that. Two, and I, two. Uh, that was to uh, Rona Cameron, who at okay. that point was called Rona Campbell. And uh, I had people coming up to me that I'd watched on telly and watched on Saturday Night Live, and people like Kevin Day going, Oh, you were great, mate, you should have won. It was like, and in some ways, it may well have been a negative thing because I then feel that really for the next eight years, I, I was thinking about this walking here, you know, I, it took me a long time to work out what I actually wanted to do. I loved stand-up. I was obsessed with stand-up from a very, very early age. You know, for the first time, you know, I loved comedy anyway because the, the, you know, growing up, Saturday night was, it was the two Ronnies and it was Dave Allen and it was all of those things. And then there was Rick Mail and then there was Alexi Sale and then it was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And then I look back and I think, yeah, probably that first seven years or eight years was me kind of doing comedy, kind of being a stand-up, but not being myself doing stand-up. Yes. You doing know, an like, impression of what you thought a stand-up Yeah, this is, oh, that, that looks like that's what a joke's meant to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that, you know. And and, uh, um, and so then when Rubbernecker came along, and at that point, yeah, Ricky was just about to become, uh, you know, The Office was, was getting its first, you know, the first series of, no, didn't get high viewing figures, but when the repeat was made, suddenly it was like that moment, then it became enormous. And Steve, Steve's act is one of my favourite things. It was such a... Did you ever see Steve Merchant's I don't think, act? Not, not, his, not his 15 from there. It I've was seen him do just this. He would come on and he'd go high status, very high status, straight away. He's got that great voice, the googly eyes, all of that stuff. Uh, and he would basically say how great he was. And then it would start to fall apart. And then by the end, he was furious and he would tell everyone, don't watch the... the don't, don't tell anyone you've seen this. I'll tell them you were lying. And then he would just storm off the stage and then there would be like about five, six seconds and then he would storm back on going, you can't get out that way. And walk straight through the middle. And I would watch it every night and it was just this beautiful play. It was, it was 15, 16 minutes of a comedian falling apart. And, uh, and But at that point, I hated... I really gone off stand-up it was a very weird thing where uh with Ricky and Steve we've been doing a thing at the Hen and Chickens uh in North London uh just on uh Islington Corner Highbury and we did a thing which was us mucking around and doing weird sketches and Jimmy would uh um MC it and then they went oh let's just do a stand-up show and I was kind of like I don't think I was doing TV writing and other things and I really felt that 
I just, I'd lost whatever it was that made me want to be a stand-up. And I can barely remember the stand-up that I did in, in that show, and it was really, really difficult. Um, and then not long after that, I, I then did a, a, a show in Edinburgh, which either people really totally got or did not get at all. You know that bit where you go, so some nights you just stand there, yeah. and it was the one where I'd end up punching a melon with Vernon Kay's face drawn on it, and it would explode, <laughs> and then I'd sing Mustang Sally. And... Um, and then it was from that point onwards, I think only over the last 14 years or 15, so actually it is now over half my career, which is not a thing, then I worked, started to work out what I actually wanted to do. But yeah, for, so, so the first bit, up, up to Rubbernecker, it was on and off, and I was a club comic doing various different clubs, and I never did kind of, you know, I, I, I ended up trying to do jonglers about two or three times, but okay. just didn't really work out at all. <laughs> what a joy to talk to Robin. He is just so... Easy to talk to, he's so honest and open and has just got a million thoughts per second. So we're going to hear a lot more of them very soon. Uh, you can go, of course, to the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to hear even more from this extraordinary thinker and comedian. And uh, you can go to Robin's... I mean, do I need to advertise anything that Robin's up to? His book, his numerous podcasts, his Radio 4 show. Basically, if you put Robin Ince into Google, it bursts. So do fill your boots with as much stuff as you can, um, because he's just someone that gives and gives and gives. And a real pleasure to have him on the show. Um, I wanted to point out a couple of things. Thanks, of course, to Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray for the use of their recording space. If you're a comedian or, or well, no, not or anything. If you're a comedian or like a sketch performer, if you're a comedy performer or even writer or podcaster of some sort, I highly recommend you get in touch with Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray and uh, see what they have to offer you because they love giving and they, they love to provide resources um, I'm not going to quote if they have a, a price list or anything like this. I, I've no idea what they do, but I'm sure uh, if you are or become friends with them or support them, then they'd be more than happy to uh, support you back. They're a really good organisation where a bunch of comedians have got together, bought their own premises, bought the lease, I should say. This is London after all. Uh, no one's that rich. Um, they've bought uh, the lease on their, their own premises and they are doing something genuinely exciting and positive for comedy in in, let's say Britain, because there's not just Londoners working there, but it is primarily focused in London. Check those guys out. Now, something really lovely happened, which I'm just going to very quickly talk about, if you'll permit me. Um, I'm always saying when I used to busk on this show for general one-off donations, which is still possible to pay if you'd like to, um, I used to uh, say, one of the things I would say, it's an old street performing thing from my dark past, um, that the people who can afford it pay for the people who can't, which of course is absolutely true. Uh, it's a way of thinking about it. You know, it's a, it's a kind of paradigm that it's, it's nice to think about. You get a nice warm feeling in your tummy if you're someone who supports the show, blah, 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 you know, because it means you're supporting it for someone who can't. Somebody, this is living proof of this concept, a listener who would like to remain anonymous was paying £2 per month to be part of the Insiders Club. Uh, remember, there are other tiers available, but you all get the same stuff. And they were enjoying the private podcast and they got in touch with me to ask if they could up their donation to pay for someone else's subscription who couldn't afford it. Bam! That's exactly how I want this to work. And not just because I obviously benefit slightly from the income. 
that is, I really wish I could tell you who this person is. They're not a comedian, as far as I'm aware. I don't recognise their name. They're someone who's been a fan of the show, a supporter of the show for a long time. And I just thought that was such a nice thing <laughs> that benefits them not at all. And let's talk about this a little bit in the postamble, this thing of doing nice things for people and never telling them. I tried to write material about this for last year's show and the stuff didn't get into the show um, but uh, it's a wonderful thing. We'll we'll cover that in the postamble at the end of this episode. I just wanted to thank that anonymous listener, and uh, I have been in touch with the person who I've uh, uh, bestowed. I, I haven't bestowed anything. I've facilitated, I facilitated the bestowment uh, of their enormous generosity. And um, so now there is another member of the Insiders Club who uh, I won't name either because I, you know, I don't want to. It's, it's not any of our business. But we warmly welcome another person who has been paid for by someone else. Here's a thought. If you're someone who has been supporting the show for a while and I have honoured your historical £1 a month donation by... I don't mean honoured, do you know what I mean? Not in like an honour way, but I just, you know, you were paying a pound from for before for a long time. So I said, hey, great, join the Insiders Club. Here's the thing when I rolled it out. If that might convince you, if you think, yeah, why don't I up it to three quid, then you could be paying a two quid thing for someone else and make that clear if you get in touch with me. How's that? Is that good? Does that go against all of the principles? Is it completely in line with all of the principles? I think that's a good thing, and I'm very happy to be uh, a part of that process. That that kind of generosity really floats my boat, whilst also benefiting me, obviously, uh, because, uh, well, you know, I, I, won't, I won't go into exactly how, and I won't lay it on any thicker than I already am. But broadly speaking, well done, anonymous donor. I am very proud of you, and I hope you're listening to this episode and feeling as smug about yourself as someone of your enormous generosity will allow themselves to feel. That's all on that. The tour is almost finished. God, we've got almost nothing left. If you're in London, come along on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of June to the Soho Theatre. There are a few tickets still left for Like I Mean It, which is my stand-up show. In London at the Soho Theatre, it is just the 55-minute to an hour show. Bang, that's your lot. If you're in Cardiff, if you're in... Where are the other places left? I think by the time you listen to this, it's just Cardiff. Um, I'm doing Tring as well, the Tringe, the Tring Fringe. I believe that's just an hour as well, like the Soho shows. But in Cardiff, the very last night of the show, I'll be doing a full preview of this year's new stand-up show, End Of, which is going to the Edinburgh Festival and will be situated in the Liquid Rooms warehouse every day of the Fringe from the first Saturday to the final Sunday in August and uh, it will be... I'm oh, not on the 16th. Sorry, someone's already got in touch to say, we always come and see you on the 16th. I'm like, I'm sorry, I do need a day off. And I thought I could take a cheeky Thursday off and I'd take everyone by surprise, including people who legitimately would like to see me. Apologies to you, Pear. Um, but if you are going to be at the festival and 2.50pm daily, a lovely afternoon show. You can roll in hungover or you can be the sort of bright, spark, perky person who's been up watching theatre since 10am. Uh, come along and see that show. It's free, but do bring money. It's at the Liquid Rooms Warehouse. It's a 250-seater at 2.50pm to celebrate my 25th year of the Fringe I'm so excited about this show. Thank you to the people of Edinburgh and in particular Glasgow. Uh, at Glasgow Stand, I did the first proper full all the way through Bells and Whistles preview of End Of and it was phenomenally good fun. So thank you to everyone and sorry that the late start time of that show and then the long interval and then me doing a full preview and that we all staggered out at <laughs> quarter past 11 feeling like we'd just been thoroughly dotted. 
So that's enough of that one tiny little thing for a sort of mad idea I've had. I'm doing a little thing in Welling Garden City, which is not actually open to the public. It's a live podcast. And I spoke to this uh, fabulous theatre group in Welling based around a theatre there. And um, they are having some sort of weekend of hijinks. And on the Saturday night, I'm going to go along and do a live podcast for them. And I also offered them, why don't we get uh, the guest of my podcast, currently TBC, to uh, come and do a set. So I'll host it. They do like a 20 or a 30 minute set. And then we have an interval and then I interview them and we can talk about the stuff we've just done and how it went. And I thought, that's a good idea. That's the sort of thing I could offer to you if you have a venue. So I'm specifically targeting theatre groups with this. If you are someone who is in a theatre group in a nice place that's not a bajillion miles away from London or Bristol, um, and and hey, if you can get 100 people together, I'll come to effing sterling um but uh <laughs> if if you think you've got a bunch of people and and a, um not exactly a festival i just thought there must be other opportunities for that if you're like um uh, a theater group and you like getting to get like a, a theater group like an amateur dramatics group or something similar some sort of interest in arts maybe that would be an exciting thing to offer you that would be i'd be a lot of fun uh, for me and for whoever the comedian was to do i could try and find someone local who you might know um, anyway, I'm pitching an idea which doesn't exist yet. <laughs> but if you're in an amateur dramatics group and you're having some sort of mini festival of things, I think that'd be quite a good thing. Why not just stick that in your pipe and smoke it? We'll come back to that idea another time. But get in touch. Info at comedianscomedian.com if you think that might appeal. I think that's everything I need to say for now. And I'm probably talking faster than usual in this bit because I'm just... As soon as I think the words Robin Ince, I just start talking faster. I hope anything in this conversation I'm having with him is intelligible um, because we're probably both having a, quite a fun time talking fast with one another. Let's get back to Robin Ince. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You know, I love it when 
when people communicate with me afterwards to say, who was that woman you mentioned who did the work in, in Pulsars? Oh, I just went to an art gallery. I haven't been to an art gallery for 10 years, but I sure, sure saw your show about art. And I thought, yeah, I should go. All of those things. Yes. That, that is, none of those things are presumably okay. why you started comedy. Sorry, that is no. my question. Yeah. No, that's the thing is, I, I did it because it just, I just loved it. I really, you know, my, my, you know that teenage obsession where there's that sad, it's not a sad moment because I still get tremendously excited by watching things that are brilliant. Like I said earlier, you know, when I watched Patti Smith, the first time I've actually seen her do a music gig, and I've seen her do poetry before and spoken word, and I just went, look at that, look at that person who, I don't know what age she is now, is it 60s, 70s, whatever, she means it. And that, that now is the thing that I think there was a certain point where the most important thing for me in an artist is, and in anyone actually, do they mean it? And I find so much of mass media, so much of political commentary, so many things where I go just doing things to rile people, just doing the, that needly bit, that, that lack of, of, uh, of, of, of passion and empathy and all of those things. And so when I watch someone, I, I think, if, if I think, that's a good act, it's an act. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that I can't enjoy it all because it doesn't have to be about you know, it, 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 you know when I mentioned before about Tim Vine. You know, one of my greatest just sometimes at one in the morning, I think I've finished my gig. I'm sitting in a hotel room. I've read a book. How shall I end my day? I'll, I'll go onto put... YouTube and I'm going to watch Tim Vine do Pemba in the Ear. And and it's uh, you know so that kind of comedy and also with Tim. Tim means it. That's what you know. Here's the beauty of the ridiculousness of, I can't remember what it's called geography hippo or something yeah, um, the hippo uh, is it cartography hippo is, is flag, flag hippo flag hippo flag, yeah, yeah, yeah. flag <laughs> hippo all of those things and they're beautiful for people who have not listened to every episode of this show and heard the numerous times we talk about pen behind the ear do oh. yourself a favour and go on YouTube and look up pen behind the ear by Tim Vine I'm not going to say any more on the subject um, absolutely. So, so what are so given that that is not what you set out to do, but it is absolutely what you relish now, and you have still the bones of a club comic who still wants to keep getting to the laugh, you know, um, which I think you smile at in a way that you're. Are you proud of that? I think you deserve to well, be proud. Of I that. think I just. That's a hard I want, one I want it thing. to be. I mean, you know, now I'm in that terrifying thing of I've got to write two Edinburgh shows and I can find all the information and what I want to talk about, but I can't find the jokes yet. You know, that, that's so that's terrifying. where you are at the moment. This is Edinburgh yeah. coming up now. I, two I, shows. I, I, I'm doing two, one, one all about my love of horror because when I was eight years old, I started to get into horror, and and I think that will partly be a story about the car crash I was in when I was three, and partly be a story about Christopher Lee and you know that kind of thing. Okay, and that one I'm kind of I'm. I'm not relaxed about, but I think I reckon I'll be able to turn that into me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a show about the nature of time from the perspective of philosophy and physics uh, uh, and also about quantum behaviour and also about the Big Bang. Uh, I've got about 12,000 words in a document of notes, but I look at it and I go, there's about 15 minutes there so far. Okay, and, but and those minutes are um, uh, explaining rather than doing gags. No, there's, 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 there's enough gags. now because I've started doing little bits of poetry as well because I found it when I took a break from stand up. When I came back, I thought I should do things I haven't done before, and I thought I'll try and write some poems or some something that changes because I'm very erratic when I start talking uh, blah, 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 which I think is why Sophie Scott who did the Royal uh, Society of Christmas she yeah. gave, I had a magnetic pulse to the side of the brain which stopped me being able to talk it affects the motor region I think I was oh, considered wow. to be the hardest person I did uh, Jabberwocky so I was there in front of a, you know, a bunch of school children uh, going brilliant and the slithy toes did gar and blah, 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 blah. that oh was my amazing God. 
She invented an anti-Robin Ince machine. Yeah, she's... Uh, <laughs> it's, that sounds like an X-Man. If you thing. have a powerful <laughs> magnet and you go, when will he shut up? All you need to do, Stuart, is pull out and place it against the left-hand so side of my head. something straight out of the X-Men where the yeah. comedians are mutants and someone has developed the technology to lock them down. <laughs> Heckled uh, by Magneto the other day. How'd it go? I couldn't get a word out. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> But yeah, so it's uh, so I've got some of the so so yeah that, that was partly the the poetry thing was an idea of me. Uh, I thought it's a way of me playing with language because I love you know that that moment where it was interesting. One of the shows that I did last year in Edinburgh because I don't have enough time to do that many previews. I actually wrote it. It's the first time in twenty five years that I sat down and wrote a ten thousand word script. And obviously, once I started performing it, it all loosened up. But I think that's why that show, I did two shows last year, one which was a stand-up show at the stand and one which was a comedy show but about art. And I think the comedy show about art was better because it was looser. The other one, because it had started as a written piece, I think it took me, especially once I started touring, almost all of that show is gone. There's only... Ten minutes out of two hours, that is from that show. If you write it all down longhand, then you're doubling up on work, aren't you? Because you're making it fit the page, and then you've got to make it come off the page. Yeah. Yeah. I've only, in the last few years, I now write almost exclusively on index cards. So I do, like, an idea, and then I'll say it on stage, and then listen back to it and go, OK, that, that's somewhere it went. So under the idea, I'll write one reminder of one of the things. You can, it's a bit hipster. Well, that's you what can I've shuffle got, I've them got and take them out. over 2,000 postcards at home with uh, my last 10 years Edinburgh shows, because all, they all start... I, my start of the show is I go and go, oh, look, they've done another lovely collection of penguin covers as postcards, right? So I buy two copies <laughs> of those, and every single night, I, and I'm just about to start that process now. In, 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 in my bag, I have... Uh, in fact, I don't I haven't got it in this one. I've got uh, a bunch of postcards of, uh, I think it's some furniture design, Classics that I yep. bought from some bookshop, and that started to have that process on. And it's a good way of doing it in one way. I mean, I think it's half and half because I think sometimes I think I've got an idea merely because I've written twelve words on a postcard. And you yes. go every single night. What I've done is go said the twelve words and gone. Yeah, I've really worked that one out yet. And so I've got, I, th- I can think of specific cards where I'm exactly in yeah. that place at the moment. But that is better than having a thousand words in a document with no ideas in it. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So at least you're closer to the thing itself. I'm my in, I use index cards and I like to buy the packs of multicolored index cards and I think I'm realizing now because on some level it makes me think there's method to it there isn't it's yeah. random what color they're on but I like the idea an audience might go oh this is a yellow card <laughs> and it is physicalizing your mind as well it's that bit of going of there is some of my mind I've I've put it in that box there and I can retrieve that when necessary and is this where you are at the moment now we're recording this in I look at my watch to find out it's June <laughs> Um, we're recording this in early June. Is this normally where you would expect to be pre-Edinburgh? I... Given the, the August, for those that don't know, the Edinburgh is the whole month of August, and it's, I, always, I always have to remind myself there are people who might not know that. Um, and that is the deadline for most comics working in the UK for the new thing to be ready. So two months to go, is this normally where you'd be? Um, I like to... Now I look back and I go, normally by now I have almost a working show. And then if I really scrutinise my memory, I go, in fact, I mean, even the one that I did about art last year, I remember doing the first preview I did, and I came off going, I don't have a show. And then by the second preview, it just all clicked in. So I do wake up every single morning, and the first thought is, oh, hell, I'm really, have I got enough? I, I haven't worked it out. 
And I'm relying on the fact that for the last 10 years, all my shows have been, a lot of it comes from performing it and, and busking it and saying, here's a bunch of ideas. And I mean, it was interesting. I remember watching, I was very relieved to see that the uh, Daniel Kitson, when uh, we were out in Oslo, and Josie Long as well, we were doing a lovely festival there. I don't know if you've done it, the Crack Comedy Festival. They're brilliant. No. It's done by the Norwegians of comedy, who are very funny. Great um, sketch troupe. They're great. And uh, um, Dan went on, and the first, he was literally in an afternoon slot where it was a total preview, the first time he'd ever said these things. Mm. And you could see he didn't quite have that, you know, that bit where you go, if my brain does not immediately, you know, turn to fire at the point of me yeah. standing on stage, I'm lost. This yeah. is just yeah. And he didn't quite have it. And there was a lovely moment where afterwards uh, in the evening, he came to see the show that Josie and me were doing. And uh, this guy just stopped him in the corridor of the theatre and he went, um, I saw your show this afternoon. I have to say... Not so good. <laughs> and, and, and Daniel burst out laughing, I think, just he thought, what a lo- you know, the fact this guy... And the guy thought, maybe he thinks I'm joking. He goes, no, 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 not so good. And it was, and it was, a, it was a great moment to see that someone who is, uh, I think, correctly considered to be one of the, the really great... Mother, that even he starts off by going, it's a, just a bag of ideas. Yes. And, and I think it's a very exciting thing to do. And every time, you know this... Every time that a show has truly come together, you can never remember that every single one of those ideas was awful. At some point. <laughs> you know that bit that, like, every single one, you had a point where you were standing there, maybe you got it right on the first night, but the second night you tried it again, and because the adrenaline was different, because you have that fascinating mm-hmm. thing, where when you first do an idea on stage... Sometimes part of your own, here we go, the words for the first time, and you're making it up, and the audience are carried along. They don't realise, but there's something going on. There's some kind of alchemy there. The yes. second night, you kind of know, and then it has died. Yes. And then it might take. Oh, but three... I've got a map. I know exactly where yeah. I'm going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yesterday, but the words they were, and then it can take five, six, ten, twenty. I mean, like the worst bits of advice I was ever given, and various comics will say this is: if an idea doesn't work, I think it's five times, or they might say four times. It's okay. not a good idea. And I think that's rubbish. So if a joke doesn't work five times, it's never going to work. And you go, no, 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 there's so many variables involved. There's so many possibilities uh, that it doesn't mean, that, you know. And I, I found there was a joke when I did a show tour about evolution. And there was this thing I had about the fruit of science. Was it the apple or the banana? And I had this whole thing which mixed up various different scientific ideas. And I did it six nights in a row at different clubs in London trying to work it out. And it never worked. It was the moment where the audience, oh, no. And then the moment I started doing it on tour, it was one of the best moments of the show. But it just took the correct framing, the correct environment. And then once I removed it from the show, I was actually able to do it in stand-up, you know, in in benefit gigs and stand-up nights. So it wasn't the fact that it had to be in the show. Yeah, it was fine. This is one of the most frustrating things happens after Edinburgh where you have to do a bit of your Edinburgh show in a club and so you instinctively make all of the editing decisions you should have made on day one of the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. <laughs> do you know I mean? Just all the scaffolding falls away. That's the idea. Oh, turns out that five minutes was a one-liner. But oh, that's, a really, that's a very interesting thing where you, once you've come up with a punchline, your brain, it's much harder. And it's, there's actually, there's a book by a guy called Leonard Lodnoff who talks about this, this issue in terms of ideas of creativity and technology and many other things, which is once you have a solution, it's much harder 
to find an alternative solution. Absolutely. So I I remember one of my favourite... I had this routine at the end of one of my shows, which I used to love performing. It was about having gone to see a, a, a blockbuster film and all the people leaving afterwards and going, yeah, it was all right, that. that. And I was like Fast being angry. Yeah, and I was yes. like really angry about it. And I, I do this whole bit about, you know, that I want to see something which is like having, you know, heroin directly injected into your eyes, like William Blake sitting uh, up a tree with some angels singing Tank Park Salute by Billy Bragg <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, the oldest Huxley sitting talking to it, all this whole thing. And then on the final night that I did it, the last gig that I was ever going to do it, I found the punchline that I'd required all the time, which is this, this, this huge thing. And then the punchline doesn't work out of context, but it, all that was was it just required the line, uh, blah, 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 three stars. And yeah, that was it. And yeah, three yeah, stars. Yeah. And it came to me on the final night. And I went, there it was all the time. It had a punchline, but it had an extra punchline and my brain wouldn't show it to me. So the idea that you could, three stars, that throws a, a whole new light on that routine. It's yeah. an excellent routine. And, and it's really interesting because that, is that, is that available anywhere, that routine? Can yeah, it's in, it's in it? uh, Go Faster Strike. The oh, of course. They, the, the, the last DVD that I've done with, I will be doing something with them for the one show that I've just done. But, but that one, which I think was, it, it is like my last ever show, as I called it, because it was when I decided that I had to stop doing stand-up for a while. And I knew full well that it was last ever show, dot, dot, dot. But yes. it, there was a little bit of me that genuinely imagined when I stopped doing stand-up for a while. Uh, I remember I was, reading your blog as you were going, this is it, I've made the decision. Yeah, and it was a really weird. I was out in Brisbane, and uh, um, I talked about it a bit in the show, but my wife rang me up and was like really panicked and worried about it, and, and then I realised that her real panic was, oh my God, he's going to be around the house the <laughs> whole time. You know? But it was an interesting period of time, because I didn't... People went, there's no way I'd be able to do it, no way. And actually, I did an odd, you know, the odd benefit and occasional like festival gigs, but... Compared to normally, I will be doing five to seven gigs a week. Mm-hmm. Compared to that, it was three or four a month. And uh, I didn't feel a tremendous sense of loss. And I think that was possibly because I'd done so much that it was, I didn't feel that I had to, it required redefining who I was. It was a bit like, you know, Edinburgh some years, one year I did four shows a day and then did other people's shows when they asked me as well. Sometimes I'd be doing six, seven shows a day. And so when someone said, oh my God, are you only, you're only doing a half run next year? And I went, I did 135 shows this year. I think I'm allowed to do a half run. You know, that bit where yeah. you go. Yeah. And it was, so when I wrote that, that part, and it really, I, I hit this, um, and it's a very funny, I, I, I think I talk about it in the book, I don't know because I can't remember what's been cut out because it was so long, but... The strange thing when you look back, when you're going through some kind of, you know, greyness, the grey dog, not the black dog of, of, you know, the full depression, but that that moment where you become detached, that moment where drive starts to dwindle, that, you know, the difficulty I had in the the tour that I did now three years ago, leaving the house was an absolute nightmare. Getting, I just had no, and I felt sad, Apart from the time I was on stage was fine. That was the only time. And that was when I realised there was something that was going wrong. That moment where you go, right, so I'm fine when I'm on stage and I'm fine for the half hour afterwards when I have a chat in the bar with the audience. And then it goes, again, and I was out in Australia, so I'm a long way. I always find Australia quite hard. I've never gone out there and done the festivals. I'm very often either on my own or, you know, sometimes with with touring with like Brian Cox or whatever. And it was... uh, 
it really hit me hard in Australia. And I'd, and I'd had a year where everything should have been what 15-year-old me would have gone, this is yeah. incredible. Yeah. You know, and instead I was going, none of this is making me happy. I'm fine when I'm on stage. But the moment I'm fully conscious, not performer conscious, um, yeah. And, and that was to do with being away from your family or I just to do with... many things. I think it was, you know, that bit ego comes into it, doesn't it? You watch other people's success and you think, why am I getting... Attila the Stockbroker, I was doing a gig, the great poet, uh, punk poet Attila the Stockbroker, I was doing his festival Glastonwick on Saturday and he said, oh, I've kept seeing your, uh, you know, the tweets that you're having trouble selling tickets in Bridgewater. He said, and I was like, ah. Oh. And then I thought, hang on a minute, I've made my whole life. He's been doing punk poetry for 40 years. He said, you know, I've been playing to between 150 and 50 people the whole of my life. And I sit there and I'm in a pub and I get a chance to perform and it's enough. And it was a good moment. It was only a week ago, but it's a lot of reminder. Mm. But, because sometimes I think, well, I've done a arena tour with Brian Cox. You know, we're doing another one. There's 10,000 people a night and they send you lovely feedback. And then when you go and play the art centre, and some of the art centres you haven't quite sold out, and some of them you like, you know, Bridgewater was not a big seller. And you you feel like, oh, God, is, it, is this it? Is this the only people I thought you, see I me? I thought and, you were all yeah, up for me. What, I th- you, I thought you're only up for me when Brian's there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think I've just now come out of that bit of, like, ah... Oh, is it enough just that the communication you are having with that smaller number of people is perhaps more potent and more important for, you know, that, that, that is it not? And I think I've just got out of it. But it wasn't nearly as bad. I've had a lot of fun doing this tour. It's just that trying to balance everything else and finish books and do all those kind of things. But uh, that time it was just something hit me, something. And I was like, the Australian solo tour was lovely and I was having a nice time. And I was meeting, but I was, the, the head was in this space of just, Oh, this has been doing this for 27 years. You know, that mm. bit where you just go... And I don't know what... And, and rationally, you look at it and you go, this is a, a better life. Look at all the things. You're staying in a nice hotel. Someone's making sure you get to the airport. It's all lovely. And, that, and, and I think it was... If I hadn't taken that break, I, th- I think that would have been very bad for me. I think just I was... Just ex- exhaustion. That sounds like exhaustion. I think that's part of what it was. I think it was a mixture of exhaustion and ego and, you know, kind of toxic narcissism, probably, you know. And then uh, the break was... And it was a a good time. It it worked out in in a bizarre way, what I'm going to say now. It worked out well because it turned out I decided to stop working for a while and my mum got ill and my mum died and it allowed me to be around and just going, right, I'm able to do these things full on at the moment and I was able to do lots of and pretty much every weekend I would go off with my son because my wife was doing a, a, a course and we'd go off and we'd have adventures and it's a very important part you know part of the thing before when I was talking about the change in standard I still think you know one of the major changes and I don't know if you've experienced this yet but there's a certain point where when you have a child in a really positive way it can reopen loads of stuff of creativity mm-hmm. some people seem to think it's the death of creativity but it, it, it allows you to go, hang on a minute, why am I doing that piece of shit when I should be doing this? You know, the, everything so is, the, the, the it, definition has changed. A whole different perspective, a whole different perspective on life, on comedy, on what's worthwhile, on, mm. on how... I mean, I'm, I'm working... When I first sat down to write, after the first time I sat in the cafe that I sit and write in, the first time after the birth of my son, which was months later, 
I, I put something, I put a snarky comment on Facebook going, oh, I'm really looking forward to some of this extra focus you apparently get. And I did. I yeah. got it because there's yeah. no, I was like, I've got 90 minutes now and that's all I'm getting. Yeah, so yeah, I've yeah. got to fucking not look at Facebook and, you know, to work on it. Not to mention all the huge life perspective, you know, where do you fit on the wheel of time, you know, mm. that you like, oh, I have a child now and that, all, all of that stuff. Absolutely. I think, and I think that's, there'll be a lot of people who are parents and who are creative people and who have been, listening to this who have been through that exact same thing mm. of going oh shit this is over now and hopefully I'll seeing it flourish and, and a different sort of trend it's interesting some of the things that you also are no longer afraid of expressing on stage I mean a few years ago I stopped getting worried if I work with people that I really admire their work I think fucking tell them tell people there's so many people if, if you you know and it depends sometimes it's scientists sometimes it's writers so lots of different groups and, and I think no oh, I love your work Oh, will you sign a copy of the book? You know, no, no embarrassment about uh, about that. Even some mm. friends of mine, people who are friends, that you know, I think express the fact that, and, and I think it it might not be that. It might be age. It might be many different things. But that thing of if you love someone's work or if you appreciate something they've done, don't be scared because it's so fucking easy to be snippy and cynical and sarcastic. And that bit where you go, it's like, I remember an old Robin Williams uh, um, routine that I think Live at the Met ends with him being uh, father and child and he becomes a child and he puts his hand up and holds mimes holding the dad's hand and walks off. And, you know, as an 18-year-old, yeah. I think I thought, oh, I'm not really sure about that. Yeah. And now I think, you know, one of my shows ended with me reciting uh, Oh, The Places You'll Go. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> today's your day, you're off to a great place, you're off and away with your brain, your head and your feet. You, you can see yourself any direction you choose, you're on your own. And on that bit. And... Uh, and I think sometimes you, you can just go, no, it's, it's fine. This is short. This is brief. And there's, it's such a... The, the, the amount, the fug of negativity that can be tapped into now, the easy accessibility of those who heckle you long after you've left the stage yes. via social media, whatever. And, and also the, the fact that the classic problem of our age, which is that on social media, you constant, certainly for artists, you constantly see the... the resonating successes of all of your peers because you're getting their mediated social media presence which they're needing to do to sell tickets and you know what I mean you're in a position yeah. of going oh maybe I'm not selling so well on a particular tour or in a particular venue whilst people are constantly blaring their achievements in a way that you oneself do because you have to do because you have to yeah I, I, I deliberately wrote a uh, I got a quite a snotty review from uh, Chortle for my evening stand-up show in Edinburgh last year. And uh, he might have been right, I don't know. Uh, it, was, it was an odd room and maybe the show wasn't particularly good that night and maybe, I don't know, with some of the things that I addressed were not what he wanted to address that particular night. But I wrote about that review because I saw how many people were... You know, you're so bombarded by four- and five-star reviews and... I thought, I'm just going to write about that because I think so, there are so many people who at the moment are just going, oh, Jesus Christ, oh, God, I, I'm not getting those reviews. Mm. So I, I just thought, just be honest and say, do you know what, I got this and it hit me for a moment. And I'd, oh, do you know what was annoying? The only I don't look at reviews. I, I avoid uh, reviews. The only reason I saw it was I knew that Michael Legg had had a really good review and I wanted to find the uh, um, address of that, web address of that, so I could plug Michael's show. So in a moment, a 
dumbfounded and stupid altruism, I end up finding my shitty review, all because of Michael Legg. And, uh, but yeah, that, that, I think sometimes, without it then becoming a kind of self-congratulatory negativity, that moment of just... Because we look at other people, it's like that moment that you find out the comic that you always thought was the most uh, confident comic in the world. And suddenly, 20 years that you've been working with them, you find out that they've been terrified and that the chutzpah that they... And it's, there's a great thing that uh, Philippa Perry, who lives not far from here, who is a psychotherapist, and uh, I, she's in, I interviewed her in the book. She says, she, I really find her a very interesting person and, and, and she writes very well. And, uh, and she said, part of the problem we have as human beings is that we uh, judge everyone else from their outside and ourselves from the inside. So when you're at a party, when you're at whatever you are, you are hearing you go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And you're seeing that woman or that man across the room going, look at them, look at the chutzpah, look at the joie de vivre. And, you don't, and then you think, hang on a minute, I'm not standing here screaming. <laughs> I appear to be chatting and having fun and doing some voices and telling some stories of yes. show business. And so everyone in this room might be actually inside going, ah, ah. But and I think that moment of and that's why the, you know some of the there's some of the stand I'm doing at the moment. There's, there's a bit that I'm in the current show where I I, I met a woman out in Adelaide uh, who told me one night to do material about suicide. Her daughter had killed herself, and uh, and so when I came back, this was just before I stopped doing stand up. And when I came back for this show, I thought I've got to write something about this. And it was a really interesting thing when I started to talk to people that I know who have reached that point in their life and, you know, then, um, and then survived it and people who've lost it. And that moment where you go, and I think some of the stuff that I like talking about on stage are the bits where I think, well, I'm allowed to be a fucking freak. I'm allowed to be, this is what I do. Hmm. You know, I talk about the fact that when you get, you know, for a lot of people, if you get a weird idea, you go, I better keep that one in. Because <laughs> if I say that in the office, people are going to go, what the... F-? Yeah. Whereas at stand-up, you know, you get a weird idea. You go, fucking hell, that's a weird idea. I wonder if that would work as a good 10. Mm-hmm. And you can do that. And that moment of being able to... You know, one of my favourite things that I talked about from a, was talking about impulsive thoughts. The fact that when you get a sense that you holding a baby and you imagine throwing the baby, you know, downstairs. And, and I would talk about the fact that, that that is not a desire. It's basically a public information film. Your brain in moments of jeopardy talks, uh, goes, you're holding a baby. Remember, don't throw it down the stairs. And the number of people that I would get coming up to me afterwards going, oh, God, I really genuinely thought that I wanted to... Because... Yeah. You don't, and so we have got... You don't have to play this role. You can do stand-up. I'm not saying that's how... But for certain times, you can be the person who says, you know that really fucking weird thought that you would never tell anyone? It's fine. It's bubbling in all of us. And that is a, that moment of when... my Still my favourite moment was when someone came up to me and went, I'm a bit annoyed. I came to your gig, I've always presumed I'm quite weird and I've just sat in your audience <laughs> watching your thing and it turns out we're all fucking weird so I'm normal. And, then, you know, those, and I think there's a genuine... It's that moment of, you know, we're all looking for a use, aren't we? And you go, yeah. oh, that's good. That joke worked and it was useful. It turns out it was pragmatic as well. <laughs> Richardson says um, uh, I've noticed in his blogs he doesn't seem to believe in himself as a performer despite being objectively pretty successful brackets I think he's phenomenal obviously Um, so the question is uh, what are your thoughts on your lack of self-confidence off stage 
I think it's it's and it is something that I I think is in a later bit of it, but I the imposter syndrome is I do find very often, especially at benefit gigs, and I look around and I go, real comic, real comic, real comic. What is real comic, though, compared to what you are? I know, it's a stupid... Again, it's the outside and the inside monologue, yeah. isn't it? It's the difference. And, and I do still... I, I see myself as being this, you know, a, a lucky amateur who's been doing it the whole... And, and that's well, not me being... you've been doing it long enough that everyone but lets you it in. it is what I do. And I know that, logically, my frontal lobes arguing with some shitty little lizard brain are going, look... Right, you make a living from this. You made a living from this for almost your whole adult life. People do turn up to see you and, look, everyone just laughs. And so it is that thing, isn't it, that you get that... The night that they don't laugh is the night that the truth was seen. Yeah, of course. And the course. 270 nights... I mean, that's why, you know, reviewers... I, I, you know, I, I don't think in any way that I'm a critical darling. And I think that my... I, you know, and it's not a, a problem. And it's... Uh, but it's an interesting thing where you just... You, because I know that, under, and it's not as bad as it was. I, I genuinely, I just have to go. Look, you do what you do, and and some people really, and, and I, I should shut it up because it's fucking so self-regarding as well. That's what annoys me. This, you just stop. It's tedious and it's boring and it's pointless. And so all I need to worry about is. Have you delivered what you wanted to deliver? And has the delivering of that meant that some of those people, hopefully most of those people, have left and gone, that was fun. But so it's a, I, I, And it is just, it's an imposter syndrome which starts from a very early age. And it's, 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 it's all the advantages, all the outsider advantages that make us what we are. It's like with Stephen Fry. Sometimes when I see something Stephen Fry thinks, I think Stephen Fry is the last person who should be doing what he does. And yet, it's because he's that which he must do what he does. I mean, that's far, you know, he's gone through his bit. That bit where you just go, oh, Stephen, this worry of the. And yet, you also you say yes to everything. You're, you know, all of these different jobs, and every barb goes straight in there. Mm. And, and so it's a, it's a. But getting that balance right. And I think overall, I, I, you know, it's a lot more balanced now than it was two and a half years ago. A solution someone offered me for uh, 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 imposter syndrome is to think, sm- recognise it's happening again, smile and congratulation that you've recognised it, and uh, then, if all else fails, remember your values. You can think to yourself, I may not be the funniest person on this bill, but I do love comedy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm valid. I'm, I've got a right to be here because I love the thing itself. I don't need to be the funniest That's person good. in the room. I, I, I would add that. I would also add, personally, that um, plenty of people who are critical darlings can't get an audience. Yeah. You know, as we know, as touring acts, there's plenty of people who have phenomenal reviews, but it's not the same thing as it's pulling power, that, you know, the yeah. ability to actually perform to people. So, anyway, can you do an impression of Michael Legg? I can't really do <laughs> Michael, actually. It's really... Um, what I can do is, when Michael has said to me... Uh, I've said, Michael, let's do a Vitriola podcast on Tuesday. And he'll go, yeah, mate, yeah, that's great. And and then I ring him up and I go, where are we meeting tonight? And he goes, oh, the Blue Posts. And I go, are we doing Vitriola? He goes, no. And I turn up and I go, Michael, what I thought we were doing... And, and he immediately goes, he goes, no, 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 that's not what he said. No, 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 no. And he turns into this and I go, yes, you did. No, no, you did not. No, you did not. But I can't do the voice. I can't do. I can only do the uh, aggression. That was a pretty horrifyingly. I like to turn him into. 
into uh, yeah, can turn him into Don Logan. Don Logan. Yeah. That's what. That's one of the things that I miss most in one of the routines that I got rid of very early on the tour. My favourite bit was uh, talking about once when my agent rang me up and all I did back to her when I turned down a job with Katie Hopkins was doing Don Logan going no 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 way no way no fucking way no fucking oh god I love doing that. That was, a, that was a question from Christian Thompson. The next question is from Michael, I believe Forster, that I didn't make a note of it. Is Ricky Gervais more annoying than Brian Cox's good-looking? Oh, it's difficult because I don't... See, Brian, I feel, is, has something of the android about him. Uh, and it's hard to... Uh, Ricky's not, because now he's entered that, you know, middle-age stage of being a little... He still will get overly excited and make weird noises at me. But he hasn't got the energy to keep it up. So, whereas uh, Brian's good looks, of course, have not faded. Ricky's energy to annoy is at a lower ebb. Oh, but, you, I wish, I wish he and everyone listening to this could see the smile in your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, that was the joy of him becoming famous. The joy of him becoming famous was sometimes we'd be walking down the street and he would start to do something to annoy me and then someone would go, oh, oh, mate, do the dance. Yes. And he'd go, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. You know, that was great. I used to love that. At which that. point you cuff him to a lamppost yeah, and scarf. Make him do the dance, everyone, go on. Well, David Duncan asks, early career at the Fringe, upstairs at the Cafe Royal, which I assume is yeah, Robin yeah. Eckert. Um, could you tell who would make it as comics, who wouldn't, and who would do something different? What, what are your instincts at the time for like going, oh, they're going places? Do you know what? There's a different thing. This is what, what's odd, is that go back 20 years and one comic a year would get to the next stage of being a theatre act. So it's only really in the last 12 years that suddenly there's this huge swathe of people becoming arena acts. So I, never, I was never a good judge on, on who would last on the circuit uh, because there were certain acts you used to think, oh, they're not very good, and then suddenly they become, you know, on the circuit the whole time. Immediately name them. No, I'm joking. <laughs> the, uh, um, but I, I don't think, you know, there's lots of people that I really uh, love watching who I think uh, should be. I mean, I do think, you know, Josie is, of course, critically revered, but Josie, I still don't think, has had the proper opportunity she should... I mean, she does this wonderful show on Radio 4 and stuff, and she's shortcuts. But, um, you know, she's someone who is has that... When we talk about Critical Darlings, that strange mix of uh, the fact that because she's properly idiosyncratic in what she does, she can't be boxed for immediate... Uh, mm. um, and then people, you know, there's, there's, there's people like kind of... Uh, I'll tell you someone who I really... I want to mention, actually, people who I think should be much better. Joanna Neary, who I've mm-hmm. worked with on many occasions. And she is one of those people that instinctually, I believe, that anyone in television and anyone in radio would be going, oh, my God, what can we do with her? She's so fantastic. And the fact that hasn't happened, I think, you know, my judgment of people who are brilliant, I think, is excellent. Uh, my judgment of what people in the media think is brilliant is very poor. And so I see... So I think, yeah, Joe jo Neary is someone who I, I, I really think should have uh, her own show. And, and it, it's, again, it's joyous. You know, when you watch someone... It's like when, I remember the first time watching John Hegley and going, oh, it doesn't even matter about the words, so the words are, of course, magnificent. There's something just so beautiful and funny about you know there's certain so I, I think I don't think in that way very much I don't imagine who's gonna once I just love something I hope that they have a huge amount of success but I'm not yeah in terms of talent scouting John Hegley is a huge I, I, I 
am a huge fan of John Hegley. And I remember I used to be, as a kid, I remember really kind of discovering John Hegley and being so excited about him. I still do. I have to admit, every now and again when I'm on the bill with John at a benefit or something like that, and I can rarely resist doing uh, Eddie Don't Go yeah, for Eddie, Sofa, yeah, yeah, yeah. Teas, yeah. those funny little tables that you have to buy in threes. The closest thing that Ed's got to piece of furniture is the cheese board. Eddie it. doesn't bolster the upholstery biz. There's a lot of furniture in the world, but none, none of, of it's Eddie's. <laughs> I remember watching him on, a, on an Edinburgh fringe, you know, when they always used to be filmed in some dank little room that would be three yeah. BBC Two yeah, yeah. shows. And uh, it must have been about 1987. And it was when, and, and John does that lovely bit where he'll go just to find up the audience now. Uh, so this is section A, this is section B, and you, sir, are section C. And he would do that whole bit where he goes, yeah. so I go, Eddie don't like furniture, and you go, na 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 Go, Eddie don't like furniture, and you go, na 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 And then he would go, and you, sir, you go, and he did this huge bit and then he just looked straight down the barrel of the camera and go and why not try this at home and it was just the way he did it there's a I, I remember watching him once where someone arrived late for his show it was at the assembly rooms in Edinburgh it must have been about 1989 1990 and they just walked in and he said nothing and he just was silent and he watched them all the way to the seat and then just went late and it's yeah that Lovely. that teaching quality. Yeah, having uh, having just uh, inaccurately joined in with that rhyme of uh, Eddie Don't Like Furniture, I have to point out what is it? Um, he once got on a rowing boat. They offered him a seat. It was just a strip of timber, but it wasn't up his street. So Eddie stood up in the boat to make himself feel steady. He threw the plank onto the bank and said, "Furniture, no, no thank, thank you." you. <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly felt like a terribly bad oh, fan because I joined great. in wrong. Great. Oh dear, he's absolutely wonderful. Right, uh, this is offered by Phil Mins with a pa- absolutely no apologies for the terribly worthy and serious question. At the moment, there's a lot of talk floating around the internet about, great start, about how the sceptical community slash online atheist slash new atheist has begun to be co-opted by the right who try to frame feminism and social justice as irrational or Mm -hmm. just emotional. Has Robin noticed any backlash in his comedy and scepticism circles against the recent rise in awareness, for want of a better term, of social issues? And if so, does he think comedy can express sufficient nuance to address it? Um... I think I've certainly, I mean, over the years recently in particular, I've, I've kind of not become distant from scepticism, but I think organised, I'm always slightly worried about, you know, there was a few years ago where I started to get worried about some of the conferences that I was asked to go to. And okay, I think, worried, worried how? Well, I found that some of the issues being talked about, some of the way that religion was being talked about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not... Atheism, it, in an odd way, it, it defines me very little. It's, 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 uh, it you used know, it, to it, 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 it used to be a bit well, more of... It well, was kind of part of your brand, in a way. Yeah, but I think it was because I did Nine Esther Carols for God, this people that only came out of arguing with Stephen Green from Christian Voice and signed to a really joyous Christmas show, yeah. which the angle was, it was, you know, why, why do people with belief have all the fun? We're going to have fun without it. Sure. Sure, but sure. very quickly people came from, you know, religious people turned up and, mm-hmm. and it was fine. And in fact, I've now changed, I, I had a bit of a break from it and it's come back and we're now calling it Nine Lesser Carols for Curious People. Correct. Because right. I think that it, it came out of a joke from a long time ago. And in fact, even this year when I interviewed, we brought it back after a few years and I came out at the beginning, I said, I just want to explain the title. And the time, I said, it's, it doesn't matter if you believe in a God, I don't care about it. It's literally, it's a, you know, and the point is, all I care about is, you know, whatever you believe. Um, you know, I, I can't remember the exact words I use, but it's like, you know, the main things I care about are kindness and, and mm. 
decency towards human beings and and I said and as we know you know there's a lot of atheists as well who having no god doesn't stop me being an asshole and, and in fact in some ways that's the bit that's made me a bit depressed and the whole audience were with that you know and, sure. then, and then the bit that makes me a bit depressed is sometimes when I do see some of the you know the the, the brutishness which is is meant to be come from this enlightenment I think oh my god you know I understand when people have somehow fallen into a trap of believing that an angry deity is going to destroy them unless they're cruel to those who've been considered to be um, the outsiders. But when you haven't even get, got a god to make you an asshole, mm. and you voluntarily, of your own free will, should free will exist, uh, you know, and 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 I, I, I was interesting. I was meant to be doing a conference uh, out in Australia that uh, just had a really interesting bill, and it was uh, for an atheist group, and I. Quite early on, I thought, I don't think this is going to happen. Because something that's happened in atheism, which I think is interesting, is about 12 years ago, 12, 11, 12 years ago, I think there was a moment where people went, oh, you don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, we must have loads in common. And then over the ensuing 10 years, we've gone, ah, yeah, the deity <laughs> issue, man. So, you know, I'm friends with quite a few people who are, well, you know, professionals in the, the world of faith. And I have lovely conversations with them, people who are, are vicars and bishops and all manner of things. And and I don't, and more and more, I think, I mean, even at the time, I had some jokes about religion, but I was always very, I'd try and be very specific. I'd never, I'd, I think anyone who just goes, oh, people only believe in, in God because they want an afterlife, doesn't know the complexity. But, you know, there's a friend of mine who is high up in the church, uh, but he believes in all of the, you know, the science, etc. He's, he's fine with Big Bang Theory and evolutionary biology and all of that. And I think it's an interesting thing to know that, you know, that God and those beliefs sits in a different part of the head for some people, not for everyone. You know, and, and so I remember talking to Richard Dawkins once and saying, the problem with just, to me, anti-religion doesn't mean very, it's anti-dogmatism. And, you know, dogma is that, so whether it's Stalinism, Mm. or whether it's extremist evangelical Christianity, whatever it might be, you know, that's the bit. Extremism is the battle. And the idea that should we eventually go, oh, God's left, there's no God, it's fine. You won't then go, everyone going, oh, now there's no God, I just, all I want to do is care and be kind. You know, that, that because we're drawn towards dogmatism. But there was this thing where there's a, a, um, a, a, a feminist and, oh, man, I'm going to be, uh, Clementine Ford who's an Australian feminist, who's written, written a book called Fight Like a Girl. And when she was announced on this conference, I started getting things from men's rights activists going, you do know that she says kill all men. And I went, I've kind of checked on this, and uh, mm. it does very much seem like this is... Uh, it's kind of meant in a very jokey way, and also with the power structures of society, etc. I think we can see how this joke works, and blah, blah, blah. No, 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 she says kill all men. I can't believe you're going to be share a stage with her. I went, I don't have an issue with her, and I think it's a joke. Mm. And at that point, I thought, hmm... Seeing things like this make me realise they're not going to get enough people to come to this conference anymore because 10 years ago they'd have got them, but now they go, everyone's fragmented. And it turns out those other ideologies. And I tried to, I said to them, one of the people, I said, look, if she does mean kill all men, she's been very lazy. She hasn't killed her husband. She hasn't killed herself. <laughs> and should, when I walk on stage, she immediately kill me, you can go. And we warned him. We said, you know, but yeah, yeah, so it's an interesting, so I don't feel, I think in the end, I've, I have, yeah, I, I, I feel, I try and distance myself as much as possible from things that can end up being dogmatic. And I would like to have as many open conversations with as many people as possible. And well, what strikes me there is the fact that you bothered to reply. Do you know what I mean? That you were prepared to have a conversation with that person, which I 
perhaps not to their satisfaction. It's hard sometimes because it's like with flat earthers and stuff and moon hoaxers. And I try to understand when they get in contact. There's no point in arguing because they've already decided not to believe in evidence and they don't believe that human beings are being in space and all those things. But I'm interested in knowing why people believe what they believe. But then there's a point where I think, oh, I'm about to tell them to fuck off, so I now have to just stop because I don't want... And that that I've not always managed to stop before that moment. But there's a little bit where your brain just goes, "I, I just can't understand anymore how you can't believe that people have stood on the moon and you can't believe that, you know, Tim Peake and Chris Hadfield have been into space and all of those things. How's this for a wrap-up? I now have to tell you to fuck off. Great. we've run out of time. Great. <laughs> uh, two, two incredibly quick questions. Yes. What would you have written on your comedy gravestone? See, even now, I wonder if when it gets to the comedy cemetery, there will be people who go, I don't think he can go in. I don't think he was, you know, so there'll be... I think that, you know, the, the imposter syndrome would be within my zombie mind. Final question. Are you happy? I think so, but as Max Wall said, and I love Max Wall, his book Fool on the Hill is a very interesting comedy autobiography. Um, you know, happy is a very, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a transient thing. It's like, you know, am, am I content? I think overall I am. Did I wake up this morning and did I spend an hour feeling quite miserable about what I was trying to achieve and worried about things? Yes. Am I happy now sitting opposite you? Yes. Was I happy when I was in the Oxford, Oxfam bookshop? two hours ago and found a book that I really want to read yes and there might be a moment when I'm sitting on the train on the way back and I go Jesus Christ what was I talking about with Stuart Goldsmith I imagine there'll now be loads of people on the internet saying what an arsehole and why did you have him on and then I'll be reading Tales from the Crypt with my son later on tonight because he's really into those comics at the moment and I'll be happy again and then I go to sleep and I might be worried what a shame there was that last sentence on the end (laughs) (laughs) thanks Robin so that was Robin thank you so much to Robin for coming along there are bundles more stuff to talk about with Robin at the Insiders Club on the private podcast which is uh, easy to sign up to for £2 a month or more if you fancy at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders you can get hold of extra content from Robin Ince, Daro, Brian, uh, Anuvab, Pal, Russell Howard, Sarah Millican, and plenty of other people besides, as well as all of these extra projects. Now, I'm going to do a quick... I'll talk to you, and if, if, you're, um, if you fancy listening, I'll talk to you about these in the postamble. But for now, thank you to Robin. Thanks to Paul Sullivan for helping to set up that interview. Thanks to Nathan Wood for producing and editing the show. And thank you to everyone at Angel Comedy, the Bill Murray Next week, ooh, maybe John Luke Roberts. Oh, it's a blinder. Maybe Raymond and Timkins. Maybe I'll wedge them both out one after another. Let's find out. That concludes the podcast for today, but if you'd like to hang around for the post-amble, please do. So, God, what a great great mood I'm in just recalling this conversation. I really enjoyed this podcast so much. Um, Let me try to remember the things I said I'd talk about in this bit. Um... Uh, doing nice things to people and never mentioning it to anyone. Have I spoken about that in a previous post-amble? It's from a John Ronson book. He was trying to, or an article, where he spoke to a billionaire and said, what's the secret of happiness? And the guy didn't want to give it away for reasons that become clear. But what he said was that you need to do nice things for people and then never tell them. And every time you tell someone about a nice thing you've done, it deletes it from your balance sheet and means that you can no longer feel happy about it inside. So you have to just continually do nice things 
and never talk about it. What a great idea. Look up some of the work of the fabulous John Ronson if you'd like to find out uh, where to um, uh, where to find out more about that or find the article. Is I, 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 I can't tell you. I don't know where it was, but I remember it was, uh, it was in something with uh, the excellent John Ronson. Um, so there's that. And I'd like to say a really big thank you as well to Stuart Laws from Turtle Canyon um, and Ed Moore, uh, who you may know as a comedy photographer, uh, Ed Strong at Chucklebusters Comedy in Bristol, and also to Vichay and Josh, who came along uh, working with Stu, who did the DVD record for me last night at the Wardrobe Theatre in Bristol, which was jam-packed with people. I was trying to decide beforehand what I wanted to do with the um what I wanted to whether I wanted I, I just I basically I paid for it all out of podcast funds thank you everyone and um uh, it cost quite a lot of money to get it prop you know given that these days any you could get two people with a phone to make like a passable thing I didn't want it to be passable I wanted it to be extraordinary um so that's why I got in touch with uh, purple Ca- uh, purple canyon that I just call you purple canyon twice turtle canyon is what I mean uh, that's what I got in touch with Stuart and, and turtle canyon who have uh, recently done uh, uh, James Acaster's Netflix recordings and, and all sorts of excellent things like that. I wanted it to be really excellent, and um, I didn't know. I just thought I wanted to buy the thing myself so I own it, so that if I want to, I can give it away in comedy uh, online releases and, and kind of taping shows at the moment. Uh, I, a few people offer some version of a thing where they tape it for you, but then you can't give it away because they want to sell it to make their money back. Of course, it's a very smart way of doing it. I wanted to own it, and all week I've been thinking, was this a sensible idea? Is this just a huge use of resources for something that I don't have a clear plan about? It was so much fun. Thank you if you're one of the hundred or so people that came along. It was so, so much fun. And I did a warm-up thing. I was kind of being the warm-up and the floor manager and the act. (laughs) So I came out and did a warm-up bit, which we taped all of that off. And that was really fun. There's some nice crowd-worky stuff there as well. And then there are some bits where I tripped up and laughed and fell over. I felt like I was doing bottom live. It was so much fun to have lots of really fun mistakes in the room. And then there was a bit where the sound went wrong. It broke for 10 minutes. The mic went down. So I'm on stage normally in the recording of something. You go, quick, get the warm-up back on. That was me. So I stayed on and did a load of stuff. I told the beekeepers joke. We had a bit of a, a muck about. There were some phenomenal heckles. I'm not a fan of hecklers. But I, if you've seen me live, you may have seen me refer to the fact that I seem to be cultivating incredibly nice audiences who offer worthwhile, positive and very funny heckles. So there were a few of them. And that, let, let that, look, I'm not opening the door here. Don't heckle ever. But on this occasion, it was fine. And um, so uh, basically then we went in, we finished the show, went back into it, fin- finished everything up. And I realised I'd sold that question for myself. What do I do with the extra stuff? What I'm planning to do now is give away the clean edit of the show, maybe maybe 55 to an hour, I'm going to give that away. I'm going to launch it bigly on YouTube. And when I do that, I'll talk to you about it nearer the time. And I would like everyone to jump on that and try and help me make it visible because, you know, that's that's how you've got to do it these days. And uh, I can rely on you guys. I know. Um, So I'm going to release the clean version for free. You can all have the clean version for free. I'll almost certainly put the audio on the podcast as well. Um, unless doing that sends fewer people to YouTube. No, probably I'll do it YouTube first to, to direct everyone there. Um, and then I'm going to make available to uh, people of yourselves, fans, listeners, who want to who fancy buying it as a special edition, I'm going to release the whole 
almost unedited. There's one or two boring mistakes. We'll probably get rid of them, but we'll leave in all the fun mistakes and there's tons of them. It's probably like a 90 minute show with the warm up and everything. So I might release a special edition for purchase so you can support me by watching it on YouTube and enjoy it. And then you can get even more enjoyment out of it and support me in a more financial way um, by buying the big long version of it. I think that is such a good piece of content don't say content it's just a piece of stuff it's a, it's like a real marker for me i've enjoyed the tour so much as the six performances left i think and that's it and then it's gone forever and I, I, this is the show i've done most it'll be 90 odd times by the end of it so i really uh, am so thrilled that we got a nice clean version i maybe i'm sweating a little bit because we didn't i didn't think to hire a makeup person or someone to run on and dab me um, but that would have been good. <laughs> I don't, I'm assured it's not a problem, but I felt very self-conscious. Um, so uh, it is. it will be released soon, I think, before Edinburgh. I hope before Edinburgh. It'd be good to get it out in, in July, and I will talk to you nearer the time about whamming a load of um, uh, views up it. I don't know the terminology. Sounds about right. So that's that. Um, uh, thank you very much to uh, Robin. I've done all this, the thank yous and everything, but but thanks. I Thank you to everyone that came to that and everyone that was involved in it. And thank you to my wife for being incredibly supportive when I got back very, very tired, having had three hours sleep after my Glasgow show and being all keyed up about the forthcoming DVD thing. And some absolutely sensational co-parenting was done to enable me to get my shit together and, and give of my best. That siren in the background means they're coming for me. I'm going to go. Thank you for listening. I'll speak to you soon.